Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's Briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to one of Deep State Radio's new briefs and debriefs in which we go to our experts and we drill down into an issue that is on the minds of the Deep State and Deep State Radio nerds everywhere. Uh, And clearly this week, one of the issues is the uh, confirmation battle over um, Kavanaugh uh, and the allegations that have been made against him. Uh, Ed Luce, uh, one of our core team uh, family here, uh, wrote a, a good piece on this about how this reveals the true nature of the U.S. Uh, as you know, Ed, these briefs and debriefs are essentially eight to 10 minutes to talk about these things. Uh, I'd just like you to uh, open up and give us your take on where this Kavanaugh thing stands, and more importantly, what can we learn from it? Uh, Oh, thanks, David. I mean, where it stands right now is kind of at an impasse um, in that, uh, as as you know, um, Dr. Ford saying that she wants an FBI inquiry into her allegation um, before um, before she'll consider testifying, and the Republicans, uh, what Senator Chuck Grassi, the chairman of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, is saying, no, we've scheduled you for Monday. If you can't talk Monday, we're going to go ahead and have a vote. And uh, uh, I'm not sure how that is is going to resolve itself. But I think if if uh, if she doesn't agree agree to appear on Monday, and President Trump doesn't order the FBI. Um, to uh, investigate her allegations against Brett Kavanaugh uh, and the Republicans go ahead and confirm Kavanaugh all the same, then this is going to look really, really awkward in terms of um, the Republicans' midterm strategy. They're kind of in a lose-lose situation politically. But the larger point that I was trying to write about earlier this week uh, is the just the way that this um, episode really crystallizes uh, 25 years on um, from from the Anita Hill um, hearing, 20, 27 years on from the Anita Hill hearing um, over Judge Clarence Thomas, how much further uh, the demographic split uh, has gone in, in the last two, three decades and that we've, you know, still got all white, all male um, uh, Republicans on that um, Judiciary Committee. Um, uh, the entire committee was all white, all male, um, both parties, um, 27 years ago. Now it's just the Republican side. On the Democratic side, we've got we've got four females, we've got non-whites, uh, like Senator Cory Booker. Um, and so the prospect that this is going to unleash a far more poisonous culture war um, a Me Too culture war between the two parties, where essentially we've got a, we do have the male party, the white male party, and then we have the everybody else party, uh, the Democrats, uh, is I think both very real, but both very real, has implications for November in terms of female turnout, 
particularly if 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 Kavanaugh is uh, confirmed uh, regardless next week. Um, but it's also uh, it's also going to inject even more poison into the already highly toxic Washington um, political climate than we, we already have. And, and that's, you know, for, for those of us who wish to see this system working at some point, that's a very, very troubling prognosis. And, but I think it's a realistic one. Otherwise, I wouldn't uh, have been writing about it. Well, it does, it does suggest, you know, multiple divisions, male, female, Democrat, Republican, um, but I think one of the big ones that it suggests is the one that opened the door to Donald Trump, which is kind of inside the beltway, outside the beltway. You know, it has to be that the part of this that is most uh, infuriating to many Americans is that it's so dysfunctional. Why is it going on this way? Why are hearings, you know, absent the 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 documents that are necessary to do them? Or why are they rushed through? Or why is there, you know, this last-minute gamesmanship or this gotcha kind of politics? It, it's, I mean, the Kavanaugh thing is quite apart from the, the the merits of the arguments for or against Kavanaugh. Kind of, you know, uh, uh, an, an in-depth look at how broken Washington is, isn't it? I mean, coming up close to an election, that too could be. Um, decisive and and that might actually you know cut back in favor of Trump it could do um i mean at the moment i'd be inclined to think it's going to increase you know what some people call the pink wave female turnout to vote against republicans if that's if that's uh, if the Kavanaugh confirmation is going to happen regardless but you know there is there is some geology to this um, in terms of Kavanaugh's background, you know, he's not some sort of independent jurist who's worked his way up the judiciary, uh, you know, and, and has a conservative bent and therefore, you know, was on the Federalist Society shortlist. This guy was the chief number one hack for Kenneth Starr for the Kenneth Starr um, investigation into Bill Clinton. He was the person who put out a lot of the leaks and the off-the-record briefings to um, to the media in the late 1990s. Uh, and, you know, he's he's been sort of groomed as, you know, one of the sort of ultra-conservative um, talents of the future um, ever since. Uh, he's a very, very ambitious, very conservative um, um, political hack who became a judge. Uh, and and uh, you know that 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 gives some geology to how the Democrats feel about this. So when he says, which I think in other contexts, you know, were you not being nominated to the Supreme Court quite reasonably? Look, something that happened when I was a, a drunken teenage boy thirty six years ago. You know that I uh, no recollection. Well, actually, he categorically denies it. But even if he'd said, of which I have no recollection, you know, is just not actionable, particularly a few days before the vote. When he says that. For most people, you would sort of have quite a lot more sympathy. But if you're um, if you're one of the Democrats up there, and you know what his background is, you know that uh, you know when he answers that gives non-answers to questions about Roe v. Wade or about marriage equality and so forth, that this is just a complete you know euphemism. Um, that he has absolutely one clear conservative agenda. Then that sort of puts it in a slightly different perspective. That this this lady, Dr. Ford, didn't just make this 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 uh, nomination hearing controversial. It has a deep geology to it, um, and I think that context is really important. 
Well, I think that's a really uh, important point, and I think it's the core of what we want to talk about here. I think, frankly, you, maybe, Ed, should have been the strategist for the opposition to Kavanaugh because the tactics that they've used have actually been sort of blunter and less effective than the point that this guy is a hack, that when it was on the star hearing, he was there saying, let's dig and find out everything disgusting we can about Clinton, that he went after Vince Foster and went after some of the sort of dark underbelly kind of right-wing conservative um, uh, conspiracy theories in order to achieve a political goal, that that's what he's been doing all along, that he's dressed up in the the the, the kind of you know, sort of veneer of a jurist. Um, he went to the right schools, but all along working with the Federalist Society, all along giving the speeches he gave, he has been essentially a political operative advancing a hard right agenda. And the president wants him because of that. And the president wants him because he thinks he's going to protect him. And that should have been the core issue. And frankly, the fact that he lied under oath the last time he was confirmed um, uh, is also disqualifying this thing uh, the, with Dr. Ford may also be disqualifying, um, but this guy has no business being on the Supreme Court of the United States. I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think um, uh, the uh, the, ba the background to this man's career, you know, is completely uh, unmistakable. Um, we, we know exactly who he is. And the, the machinery behind uh, his advancement, you know, was uh, just think of how um, uh, quickly that letter, 65 women signed, um, uh, attesting to his good character and, and virtues uh, uh, when he was uh, a teenager uh, at the time that the allegations arose. That came out 18 hours you know, after it emerged that um, these allegations were being made. Just 18 hours it took, apparently, um, to find 65 women who knew a boy 36 years ago who went to a single-sex school. Uh, you know, clearly, clearly it wasn't just 18 hours. Clearly this had been prepared, you know, for any eventuality. Um, and so the, the strength of the machine behind him I think is what's carrying him. Because if you look at the caliber of the individual, not very impressive. I mean, and, and leave, the, leave the allegations aside. His answers, not very sophisticated, not very quick-witted, not, not, um, not, not, a, not a high caliber hack, a, a, a fairly mediocre one. It's, it's becoming clearer and clearer. Well, yes, I th and thank you for that. I, you know, just to wrap and put a button on it and go back to your pink wave point, um, you know, one of the few consistent policies of Donald Trump has been to be an advocate for sexual harassers and sexual abusers and his own sexual harassment and sexual abuse, whether it's defending Roger Ailes or Rob Porter or Corey Lewandowski or Kavanaugh. He always steps up uh, and says, uh, this is a good guy. Uh, I support him, I'm behind him, and the Republican Party has not pushed back. They have owned it. They got the guy who was the pussy grabber, they elected him president, he hasn't changed, they haven't been able to persuade him to change. This is a pattern, and it will not be lost, I think, on women 
when they go to the polls in November. I also hope it's not lost on men of character who simply do not approve of this kind of disgusting behavior. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't mean, know if you want to add to that. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to force you to editorialize here, but. Well, I, I mean, I do, I do think this is going to, you know, heighten um, uh, democratic enthusiasm, not just amongst women, but uh, you know, th this is a losing. There's no, there's no real upside for the Republicans now. Um, uh, you know, if they wait for an FBI investigation, which could take weeks, um, and then lose the Senate in November, they're going to lose this seat, and that's clearly dictating their panic. But if their panic dictates um, the speed of this, then they're going to to bring the base out on on the other side to an even greater de degree than it than it already. So it, you know, it's a losing strategy. Um, uh, for the Republicans, um, whatever they do. Well, I think that's right. Thank you, Ed, for this. Thank you for joining, uh, as is appropriate, for one of the very first of these briefs and debriefs here at Deep State Radio. Thank you to everybody for listening. And for more briefs and debriefs and for more rants and for more regular podcasts and for more content, go to www.deepstateradionetwork.com. Join up, be a member, support the deep state. Thank you very much. Hi, this is David Rothkopf. Welcome to another one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs in which we explore an issue in the news uh, and get into a little bit more depth with one of our experts. Today, we're lucky to have one of the, the friends of, of, of Deep State Radio here, Katie Fang, who is an attorney and who uh, has been a prosecutor um, Katie, I assume you've been watching uh, the Kavanaugh hearings today. Is that correct assumption to make? Yeah, me and myself, and sounds like most of America has been tuning in. It's kind of hard to miss that, right? Yeah, well, I kind of hope they were tuning in, frankly. The morning sure. was quite inspiring, um, and the afternoon has been shocking in some ways. But um, rather than my, my offering my take, what's your what's your take on it? We're doing this sort of late in the afternoon, so we haven't quite finished the testimony of Kavanaugh, so I want to put it in perspective for people. But up until now, what's your perspective? Well, uh, you know, I don't know, David, if we need to even continue to keep on hearing from Brett Kavanaugh. I think that he's pretty much made his position on this perfectly clear. Um, I'm, I'm stunned. Uh, as a practicing lawyer who also routinely appears in federal court, I would never have expected to see that level of just kind of visceral anger from a sitting United States appellate court judge, right? Definitely not something I would expect to see. I will not begrudge Brett Kavanaugh that he is in perhaps what he seems to think is a professional and personal fight for his life and his career, right? But I just was stunned because it wasn't something that I expected to see from him. And what's problematic now is um, the Republican Senate Judiciary Committee members have now basically stopped asking questions. And wasn't that the whole purpose of this hearing? The purpose of this hearing was to dig deeper, 
to get more information, to ask the more probing questions, and they're not asking that at all. Um, once Rachel Mitchell asked some questions and almost like checked the box on behalf of the GOP, the next thing we know is the only time that we're hearing questions is when um, Democratic senators are questioning Brett Kavanaugh, and now all we're getting are some pretty angry soapbox speeches from the GOP. So to the extent, David, that you know, there's maybe a little bit more time left in this hearing, yeah, great, but I don't think we're going to get anything more illuminating or enlightening. And then it really kind of boils down to something that I've been asking for weeks since Dr. Ford came forward, which is, where is Mark Judge? Why does he get a pass? I get it. Dr. Ford has to be there. Um, I get it. Brett Kavanaugh has to be there. Where's Mark Judge? And why won't Brett Kavanaugh answer the question when posed to him as to, don't you want Mark Judge to be here to kind of clear the air and, and add more evidence and transparency to this process? And Brett Kavanaugh dodges the question and won't answer it, which also kind of suggests that perhaps we're not going to get the full, um, what is it, the disinfectant of, of sunshine and light on what has really happened here. And so it's kind of disconcerting. Um, actually, it's very disconcerting, David, as a United States citizen, as a woman, as a mother, um, and as a lawyer. Uh, this, this, this process is just devastatingly not what it should have been. And I find it hard to believe that there aren't other completely qualified on a, on a character level and on a professional level candidates for this job. It's the highest court in the land. This should not be the process by which we achieve our next Supreme Court justice. Well, let me let me ask you questions to sort of break it down into three parts, okay? Sure. First of all, this morning we had Christine Blasey Ford come out there. No one had seen her. Nobody knew anything about it. Uh, she was put into a very, very tough situation. Um, how do you think she did? I think she came across credible. Um, I think that she had a level of sincerity that – I would not have expected anything less from her in that regard. She was remarkably more composed, still emotional, but more composed than Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and in and, and it, and it, the way that she spoke and the way that she testified, I felt rang true in a lot of people's minds as well as their hearts. Because remember, David, that's the difference, right? As a lawyer, we're, we're really counting on evidence and facts that we can, you know, either see, hear, touch, or listen to when we're listening to cases and trying the facts of a case, especially if you're a member of a jury. And so for, for Dr. Blasey Ford, this was her opportunity to tell her story and to be able to answer questions. And I think she did a great job. And I think we saw that. And I don't think that this was a huge shining moment for the GOP this morning um, in terms of the way that she testified. So then everybody was waiting with bated breath for Brett Kavanaugh to come in. And I, I think like many others, expected him to be calm, composed, maybe firm, maybe stern, maybe just a little bit more um, impassioned than just past that point, And to say, I didn't do it very directly. Um, and, but I think that the, the comparison now between Dr. Ford this morning and Brett Kavanaugh is just startling. I mean, it's almost like they're at different ends of the spectrum. And I think that that's going to be um, a problem for Brett Kavanaugh. But ultimately, um, I don't think it's, I don't think Dr. Ford's testimony this morning is necessarily going to move the needle for the Senate Republicans. So let me ask you a couple questions about the Kavanaugh side of the hearing. One that struck me, and I'm interested in your perspective, was that his statement, which went on and on, mm -hmm. 
was at, at, at one point extremely political, uh, even threateningly political. And he brought up the Clintons and he said, what goes around comes around. And, and, and you know, it's, it struck me that regardless of what the subject of this conversation is, it's about whether somebody can serve as an impartial justice on the Supreme Court. And he revealed himself in this statement to be incredibly partisan. Now, you know, I, I, but that was just me, though, and maybe this is inevitable, and I just want to know what you're thinking. Well, I hate the word inevitable. It kind of means like this whole thing doesn't really have a purpose then, does it? And it's really kind of underscores how politicized this whole process has become. I mean, this, the process to appoint a Supreme Court justice um, if I can digress for a second before answering your question, David, it should never be a political process. I get that whoever's the sitting president gets to have the, the pleasure of the nomination, you know. But, I mean, this whole process, it should be as nonpartisan as it can be, which is why when you do get somebody who says that this was a, quote, calculated and orchestrated political hit to exact revenge on behalf of the Clintons, I mean, really? Was that a necessary component to be able to defend his honor? Today, I don't think so. In fact, I know it was not. And so now, if you are going to be a litigant, if you're going to be a lawyer representing a litigant, don't you have a fear now that if you bring some type of case before either Judge Kavanaugh, if he remains on the appellate court bench, or Justice Kavanaugh, if he ends up getting appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States, you have a legitimate fear that there's going to be an already biased and partisan mind um, made up by Brett Kavanaugh. And that's not how the legal system is supposed to work. That is a complete perversion of our judicial system to think that the deck is already stacked against you because a sitting judge who's supposed to be a fair and impartial arbiter of the law has already predetermined the outcome of your case because you may not share his political views. That is wrong. And so his, his, drama today. I get it. He's defending himself. He's got a wife and two young daughters. I get it. He's being attacked. But you know what? It's just exceptionally unprofessional for a sitting judge, a federal judge especially, to show that level of impartiality on national television. So one other, I mean, there's been a lot of drama here, but some of it has been kabuki theater, right? And, and one one component of the Kabuki theater has centered on uh, the Republican complaints that the Kavanaugh uh, the the revelation about Dr. Ford was dropped in at the last minute because you have to ask the question the last minute of what who said it was the last minute why couldn't this process go on longer they determined that it was the last minute because they wanted to rush through the process but the other component which relates to that has to do with um, Kavanaugh demanding to clear his name, um, but then when confronted by Senator Durbin directly with the option of saying, an FBI interview will help clear my name, I understand as a judge that having an objective, seri an inve objective investigation in which the people who are questioned do so under oath and under penalties of the law if they lie, um, that, that that would help clear his name. And, and when he said, do you want that? 
Kavanaugh sat there stone-faced. Mm -hmm. He just simply couldn't open his mouth and say yes. And part of the Kabuki theater, sorry, but just to put it into perspective, is he, you know, earlier it said, well, I do whatever the committee wants. Well, the notion that somehow Kavanaugh, the White House, and the committee have not determined that they don't want an FBI investigation is ludicrous, is it not? Well, yeah, because as a judge, you have to be a lawyer. As a lawyer, especially somebody of Brett Kavanaugh's ilk, and, and you know, he's, he's, a, he's a, yeah, listen, I was Yale undergrad, and as, a, as an anecdotal note, I'll tell you, there was a lot of drinking at Yale when I was there. So he's a double Yaley, Yale undergrad, Yale law, and when he graduated, he's a lawyer, and he, became, he got on the bench, and, you know, he's, he knows what is important for people to know in a case, and that is evidence, that is facts, that is, you know, third parties. Um, charged with a duty and the mission to investigate allegations, because how much better would this have turned out for Brett Kavanaugh if the FBI went, spoke to all of these people, got the statements, and then was able to make a presentation? You know, I don't disagree. Hello. Yes, it's not the FBI who's going to say you are guilty of a crime. The FBI doesn't say that. The FBI collects the evidence, and then they present it to a prosecuting agency. Let's say if this was a criminal investigation, and then it's up to the prosecuting agency to decide what charges are best to pursue in this whole arena which i've always emphasized for weeks now this is not going to be a trial nobody is on trial right now so side note using a prosecutor like rachel mitchell whether you thought she did a bang-up job today or not i thought really kind of set the tone for what was going to happen today but you know you want to be armed with all of the available facts and the evidence and so for kavanaugh to sit there and say, quote, I welcome any investigation, well, then he should himself demand that they put the brakes on this, let people and witnesses and facts be explored and investigated by a third-party law enforcement agency, and then let them revert back with the facts and the evidence, and then let other people have a comfort level on what has occurred. Because you and I both know, David, that this confirmation vote is going to be shoved down and rammed down people's throats tomorrow morning. That's what's going to happen. Well, no, I think it is. And and yeah. I think the Republicans are hardening on this as the day goes by. I think their anger is to some degree a manifestation of the fact that Christine Blasey Ford was so good. One mm -hmm. of the central issues and another one of the bits of strange kabuki theater in this, uh, although there's a huge number of inconsistencies, is that she put somebody else in the room for this criminal act. And that's Mark Judge. And interestingly enough, um, uh, you know, one of the key elements of keeping the FBI out is not to have Mark Judge interviewed by them or not to have him appear as a witness um, because they're afraid of what he's going to say if under uh, the pressure of real scrutiny. But interestingly, when asked about Judge, uh, Kavanaugh said, well, look, he gave a statement saying he didn't recall this. So that refutes all of your assertions. Uh, I think misunderstanding what the word refutes means. And then later on, when asked about his book, Kavanaugh oh, said, priceless. I don't believe his book. He's a drunk. You well, know, I it's mean, like, and, and, that, and that dialogue that happened about Mark. And here's the thing that's coming across, which I find to be just so odd, 
Brett Kavanaugh is like carrying the flag in the defense of Mark Judge and, and almost like insinuating, if not directly a- accusing, the fact that people want to hear from Mark Judge, especially in a controlled environment like, I don't know, a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. So, you know, the fact that Kavanaugh is like, how dare you attack a man who has suffered from alcoholism and um, has medical conditions. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that that in and of itself disqualifies him as a witness who could testify under penalties of perjury as to what happened that night. There is no civil or criminal case that I ever dealt with as a lawyer, wherein if there was another eyewitness or, or exceptionally, like, pivotally relevant witness to an event, to either a a civil claim or to a criminal case, there is no way in hell you would not get to that person, call them as a witness, subpoena them, force them to appear, rid of bodily attachment to make them show up. I don't care what it took, you would get them. And the fact that we're not hearing from Mark Judge, the fact that there's this level of protection for a man who's holed up now in Delaware or wherever the hell he is, is absurd. And this is a total perversion of the process now. We're all sitting here dancing around Mark Judge. He's become like the iconic figure of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, and nobody has ever going to hear from him other than him saying in a letter through his lawyer, I don't recall. That's just well, not sufficient. Right. It's, it's kind of like the bizarre, twisted institutionalization of the bro code. You know, and there was this bro and they were in a room and they're going to go and protect each other. And they're actually setting up this massive apparatus that involves the president, the, the, the Senate and keeping the FBI out and all of this to keep him away. But, you know, there's also built into that a certain degree of entitlement. We went to private school. We behaved like jerks. Uh, you know, we're, we're entitled to get through this. And same, same is true, you'll forgive the expression, with what happened at Yale. And one of the reasons we call these briefs and debriefs is because they're supposed to be brief. So let me ask you one, one more quick question, and that is about the long-term implications of this. The only person this afternoon who sounded more unhinged than Kavanaugh was Lindsey Graham, who... Yeah. The top of his head exploded. It blew off. You know, he went completely nuts, said this was the worst moment in the history of the Senate, blah, 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 blah. And this was a you know horrible moment and things will be, you know, never be the same uh, and and so on. And, you know, all I can think of is Merrick Garland. Do, do you remember the 400 days that you didn't approve him um, and how you manipulated the process then? But. But as you look forward and you sort of have the context of what happened with Merrick Garland and what has happened here, what do you foresee for this process in the future? Yeah, I see, sadly, that when somebody like Brett Kavanaugh gets appointed to the highest court of our land, that it's really just depressing because not because you know it, it's the process has been has become a depressing process because now it's it's going to be be almost irrelevant um, you know what the qualities are or the qualifications are of the nominee I mean listen David last year the whole nuclear option being invoked and us getting to this point listen I've made the argument and you know and I'll stand by the proposition that. 
maybe that filibuster shouldn't happen on somebody like Gorsuch, right? Maybe it should not have been, quote, wasted and all this other stuff. But, you know, it really shouldn't be at this point for the appointment to such a court. I mean, this is the Supreme Court, lifetime appointments, people at his age, as in Kavanaugh's age. These are people, these are people who are going to be making the decisions that are going to materially affect all of us in the United States. And so the future of appointments has now going to be what? Lindsey Graham losing his mind on national television and screaming and doing, by the way, zero fact-finding. The purpose of today's confirmation hearing was to fact-find and get information from Dr. Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. And as we circle back to my first comments at the beginning of this, this talk with you, the GOP just kind of stopped, right? They just kind of said, look, we don't need to ask you any more questions, Judge Kavanaugh, because we already know what we know. Well, doesn't that tell you everything you need to know about what's happening to this process and where the process is going to go? And so it's depressing. It really is depressing as a, again, as a United States citizen, as a mother of a daughter, um, and as a lawyer. This is one of the most depressing things I've seen in a long time. Well, uh, thank you for putting it into perspective. We hope you'll come back onto Deep State Radio, onto the podcast uh, again and frequently. You're terrific. Uh, we love the commentary that you do on TV also. And um, we'll let you go back to watching the remainder of the hearings uh, and talk to you sometime soon. Thank you very much, Katie. Thanks, David. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, where I am joined virtually by Rosa Brooks, who is somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area, I'm fairly certain. Where are you, Rosa? David, I'm, I'm right here in Washington, D.C. At Georgetown? At Georgetown University Law Center. Yes. The, well, the white-hot epicenter of the universe. <laughs> yes. And also in Washington, we have Dr. Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, and you're also somewhere in D.C., right, Evelyn? I am. Cleveland Park. Wow. Very nice. And in London, we have Corey Shockey, double I, double <laughs> I love S. I that you said it as though there was a question mark at the end of it, David. <laughs> well, I'm never quite sure where you are, and I thought you might be somewhere in mourning for the Cardinals' season. Well, in fact, I am in mourning for the Cardinals season. <laughs> the Cubs made it quite clear why they are carrying the National League as Central Division pennant, and we are not, by playing magnificently to close out the season against us. So I am grieving that the fact that my dad's ball club, the Giants, couldn't beat the Dodgers, and my own club's troubles mean Yesterday was the last game of the season for my ball club. So, yeah, I am indeed grieving, David. Thank you very much for taking but, that up. But you, as the holder of the TR of optimism, must be looking <laughs> at this from the perspective that pitchers and catchers report in four and a half months. Exactly! <laughs> yes! Um, the reason to send flowers and chocolates in the middle of February is because that's when pitchers and catchers report for spring training. And my ball club is shaping up with a whole bunch of young firebrand pitchers, which are going to bode so well for us next season. <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody wanted that's where we all wanted to, to start with 
So, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to start with a bit of domestic drama in the U.S. and then I'd like to sort of tease it out and see whether it really means anything for the U.S. role in the world. Uh, and that has to do with the battle over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to be the next justice of the United States Supreme Court. Because, you know, it's not just a nomination battle or it's not just a conversation about a entitled white guy who apparently can't hold his liquor and who, uh, you know, can't contain himself in, in public discussions. Um, but it also reflects the nature of political divisions in the United States. Uh, it is going to have an effect uh, almost certainly on the uh, elections, which are a couple of weeks away. And those elections, of course, could have a big effect on how the United States acts in the world. Uh, and so I'd, start, I'd like to start at the white hot center of the universe at Georgetown Law Center, um, with you, David. Yeah, yeah, with Rosa, <laughs> um, who has been sort of, you know, on top of this whole thing and obviously looking at it from a legal perspective. And I'd like you to sort of start us on this journey of trying to tease out the broader significance of this battle. Yeah, I mean, well, look, first of all, to state the obvious, the battle over Kavanaugh is both an uh, a, a cause and and effect of the deep partisan divide in this country at this point. Um, I think it's getting harder and harder for most Americans to separate out their partisan perspectives from what's good for the country as a whole. Um, and we've seen that in the way this has been playing out in the media and the way this has been playing out in Congress. And that's pretty darn depressing. Um, what is the longer term significance? Um, I won't even talk about the longer term significance of uh, uh, a potential Kavanaugh uh, confirmation on the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, because we're not really a legal podcast. So let's leave that aside. Um, but I think the longer well, we're term... Le we're, we're legal. <laughs> we're, we're legal. You don't mean we're an illegal podcast. <laughs> we're a totally lawful Le podcast. Yeah, we're lawful. And yet, okay. and yet uh, no, I mean, I mean, we could go on at, at great length, and I don't think this is the, probably this is not the right podcast to talk about the the implications of, of Kavanaugh's judicial philosophy for, for the Supreme Court. Um, I think, you know, it's been said, it will, you know, it will alter the court for 20, 30 years to come. Um, and, you know, cementing in many ways uh, a partisan divide on the court itself, it will have pretty negative consequences, I think, for the court's legitimacy, which is already uh, in some jeopardy. But I, I think to me, the the sort of broader ramifications of this, um, which, which which do affect America, America's role in the world and American foreign policy and America's influence around the world, um, is that we have always taken enormous pride in setting an example of democracy for the rest of the world, one that other states should try to emulate. And we're not looking that good right now. Um, and it, it's not just that we are presenting the unseemly spectacle of everybody screaming at everybody else. Um, I think it goes beyond that. Um, the the uh, Think about the sort of structural pieces of this. Um, we now have a situation in which, because of the nature of the Supreme Court confirmation process, it's it's the U.S. Senate that confirms Supreme Court nominees. Uh, our Constitution 
uh, contains, among other profoundly anti-democratic provisions, uh, a provision saying that every state, regardless of the size of its population, every single one of America's states gets the same number of senators. So Wyoming gets the same number of senators uh, as California or New York or Texas, right? Um, and given the nature of American demographics, one of the things that that has done has is that it has sort of permanently tilted the Senate uh, towards a whiter, older, and more rural population than than exists in the country at large. Uh, so we have a body of individuals who are about to vote on Kavanaugh. Uh, who represent essentially a dwindling share of the U.S. population and who are now in a position to put into place a Supreme Court justice who will probably be there for the next 30 to 40 years, uh, making decisions that will affect all Americans. And and to, to give a little bit more, more clarity to just what the gap is between uh, demography and the, the current U.S. Senate, um, a CNN analysis a couple months ago found that um, if, uh, let's see, let me see if I can find you the exact numbers here. Um, if every single Republican in the Senate votes for Kavanaugh and every single Democrat votes against Kavanaugh, uh, Kavanaugh will be confirmed given, given that Republicans have uh, more senators than Democrats. But the, but the, the minority of senators who would be voting no if it's a strict party line vote will represent 30 to 40 million more Americans than the senators who vote yes, uh, and that's because each two each senator, you know, if you're if you're the senator in Wyoming, each senator for Wyoming represents under 300,000 people. If you're the senator for California, each senator for California represents uh, uh, well, somebody's going to have to figure that out based on the population of California, but it's it's you know 20 or so times more than. Uh, it's almost 20 million people per senator uh, for California. Um, and so what does that mean? What does that mean that we have this sort of profoundly anti-democratic body at this point that is over-representing one demographic uh, in, and having results that will affect America for generations? You know, I think it becomes harder and harder for us to be a model to anybody else. And, and actually, we're seeing that. There was a study a couple of years ago of the degree to which states that modify their own constitutions or adopt new constitutions, use the U.S. Constitution as a model. And it found that for most of the last century, many states used the U.S. Constitution as a model, but for the last few decades, fewer and fewer are doing so, partly because I think they've seen that our Constitution in all kinds of ways is actually becoming a, a sort of crippling force in American politics. So that, I think, you know, it's really hard to know how that plays out in the next decade or two. But I think part of our dwindling global influence is that we, we we have less and less ability to credibly say, hey, world, look at us. We got this one right because we so manifestly seem to have this one wrong. Well, let me pick up on that. I was going to go to Evelyn, but let me go to Corey first and then I'll come back to Evelyn. Because, um, you, you know, Corey, the data that that uh, Rose is talking about if you project it out 20 years from now, you end up with something like um, 30% of the population having 68 seats in the Senate and 70% of the population having the rest. That's not only making the country more conservative and less democratic, as Rosa points out, but it tends to be those red states tend to be a little bit more isolationist, a little bit more 
xenophobic. They're, you know, they're a little bit less tolerant. It's just the nature of things that when people are in cities that are diverse, they grow comfortable with diversity. And when they're in places that are less diverse, they become uh, less comfortable with it. And we're about to go into a period where the upper house of the United States Congress is more wary of the rest of the world um, than than the the vast majority of the country. Yes. Um, you know, I was gnashing my teeth as my dear friend Rosa was talking uh, because... That's not uh, good for I, your teeth, by the way. <laughs> I disagree with her on this one. Although I, I cede you the point that it has, at the moment, the foreign policy consequences of, of the Senate being less... Uh, supportive of engagement in the world. But that's not always the Senate's position. And it may not be the Senate's position, even as it represents more and more rural states. I think the main reason I was gnashing my teeth, though, is that it's it's not new that the United States Senate overrepresents small states. Um, and it was designed for that purpose. So I struggle with two things. First, uh, tell me how we get a different constitutional system that the states overrepresented in the Senate agree to give that up in order to better make what the House of Representatives is designed to do, which is represent people by population as opposed to by state. That is, you are you to make the changes you and Rosa seem to be suggesting, you would have to neuter what the Senate was designed to do as a balance to the House, which is make small states or smallly populated uh, states feel safe blended in with big cities and big states. And so as a practical matter, I don't see how you ever get to that change. But moreover, that's the system was designed that way for a reason, which is to balance big and small. And if you take away the balance, um, it seems to me unfair to the people who don't share the views of people who live in big diverse cities, and they're entitled to their views. So it seems to me that a better solution than a constitutional change is we need to engage our fellow Americans and win this argument about America engaged in the world, rather than deny them the ability to have small state representation that balances popular representation in the House. Well, the but, last but, thing. Oh, sorry. Uh, nope, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just was going to ask a question. What's so good about giving small states this extra bump? Why do they need it? I mean, what? How does that benefit the uh, they country? They need it in order to agree to participate in this system, right? It, that's what it took to get Rhode Island into the United States. Well, I know, and but things it, have changed. It's not ipso facto wrong to protect the views of the minority against the views of the majority. No, I understand. Yeah. I, I understand that. But there are lots of minorities in America. And in, in the, by giving, you know, the, geog the geographic minority uh, upper hand, it undermines the interests of a lot of other minorities in the country. I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I wasn't 
by the way, arguing for this position. I was just observing that this was a change that's going to take place. Um, but I guess if you scratch a little deeper, yeah, I am arguing for it. I think this is one of the flaws in the Constitution that's going to cause a real problem in the United well, States. Good. One, one, one thing I, to just throw in there um, is that the gap inside, I mean, you're absolutely right, Corey, of course, the Constitution was designed to do exactly that, um, to balance, to, to, to prevent the tyranny of the majority, uh, among other things. But I think what, what's happened is we've drifted towards the tyranny of the minority, uh, which is the only thing worse. Um, but it's it's worth noting just just two facts about this. One, the decision to have two senators per state rather than some form of more proportional representation representation was hotly divide contested when the Constitution was adopted. There was a huge debate over it then, and it barely made it through. You know that it wasn't a foregone conclusion then, and we shouldn't accept as a foregone conclusion now something that wasn't a foregone conclusion. 225 years ago, we particularly shouldn't accept it as a foregone conclusion, given at, at the time of the Constitution's adoption, uh, I was just skimming some population figures for the states at the time the Constitution came into being. No state had a population that exceeded the population of any other state by more than a factor of about eight. We now have states like California and New York that exceed the populations of the smallest states by, you know, factors of, of many, many, many times that. You know, we have California with 20 million people. We have Wyoming with 500,000 people. Um, so, so I think that the, the you can agree in principle that there should be some sort of extra boost of representation for minorities of all kinds, including those who inhabit less densely populated or smaller states, and yet at the same time think that demographic shifts and urbanization in the United States uh, have meant that we have now skewed things, skewed power in the direction of a small subset of the population in a way that the framers could never have imagined. I, and I'll, I'll, I'll let Evelyn jump in and leave for, leave for later. I think your other, your other point, which we, we should also talk about, what do you do about this, which is a, a fair question. Well, and that's, that's actually what I wanted to chime in on, because I'm, I'm with Corey on this. I'm a conservative with a small c when it comes to tinkering with Congress. I worked in the legislative branch about a decade. Um, and even before that, I was on the House side as a fellow when I was still in grad school. Um, and then most of my, and then my legislative career was in the Senate on one of the committees and then running a congressional commission. And I can't see a better solution. So even though I completely see your point about the current dilemma that we're in, um, Rosa, I just don't know what a better solution is. And so without having a better one at my fingertips, I revert back to let's not tinker with it so much. And actually, I think the reason we're in this problem right now with Kavanaugh is because Senators Reed, Harry Reed and McConnell, but really you have to put the responsibility on Harry Reed because he was the majority leader at the time, changed the rules in the Senate so that you could confirm a, uh, you could confirm, confirm judges. And of course that includes the Supreme Court, any Supreme Court nominee, uh, Supreme Court justice without having the 60 votes, without having the filibuster. So he got rid of the filibuster in that instance. That was a huge thing in the in the history of the Senate to eliminate that. That is actually where the Senate gets a lot of its cooling factor, if you will, because you have to get more than 50 percent. You have to get an overwhelming majority, if you will, of support for um any kind of uh, controversial piece of legislation or controversial nominee. So 
I, I would, I would, I would argue for keeping everything as is and actually going back in time <laughs> and, and reestablishing the filibuster. Well, um, oh. yeah. Sorry. Okay, so Corey, you know, let's let's go back to this. I, I know you love the 19th century as no place else, and and uh, you know we we've had a history in this country periodically of big divisions producing big problems, and you know the notion that somehow um, you know this 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 small number of states are going to have this very very large an increasingly disproportionate influence over the direction of the Senate of the United States. And by the way, the uh, uh, collateral benefit in the Electoral College that comes along with it um, suggests, uh, you know, potential problem. And, and as you say, it's very hard to see how it will change. But then the question becomes, what do you do about it? Or what do people do about it? Move and, there in and, large numbers. Oh, okay. Well, that's one oh, possibility. That, that's I agree. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I agree. Right? That's how Colorado that's, changed. That's at least that's at least that's one of the possible solutions. But you right. need incentives then to get them there. Yeah. Right. Except that they don't necessarily want the incentives, and they're not so embracing of that diversity. I want but the incentives. Well, I understand, and you like it in Wyoming, <laughs> and and, and 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 I and I and I see that, but you know, it seems to me that there are two. Possibilities: one very extreme, one very likely. The, you know, the extreme one is, and and you know, you talk about why would the the redder, more sparsely populated states uh, allow for a change? Well, another point is why will the more densely populated um, states that are underrepresented tolerate it? Why would California, you know, be in a system where Wyoming has equal clout in the Senate? California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Wyoming is insignificant. So why would they tolerate it? And so in, you've, you've got a choice. They either, you know, gradually, you know, they're sort of light, not lighthearted, but they're not ter terribly seriously taken talk about secession. But, you know, I've often thought about, you know, the solution to this is something called New Canadornia. And New Canadonia <laughs> is the west coast of the United States, Canada, and the east coast of the United States, which share a lot of views. And wait a minute! Wait a minute! Can we can can we have parts of Florida too? That's the east coast. No! Yeah. Wait, hold on. <laughs> if we're going to gerrymander our own new country, I want to get to pick the best real estate for it. So that's fine, and you will be in charge of that. Oh, but good. but okay, thank you. but so New Canadonia, you know, is kind of one option. But I think. Very unlikely. What seems more likely to me is that people increasingly, you know, don't take the central government of the United States as seriously and they become more state oriented. And California says, well, screw you. If you're not going to pass the laws that we want, we're going to pass our own. And the, the center holds less and less in the U.S. So, you know what? Well, I, I think I that would be a great outcome for the country. In fact, uh, I defer to Rosa as the constitutional scholar amongst us, but my eighth grade civics class recommend, uh, recollection of this is that that was the country they thought they were forming. And that what has happened over about the last hundred years is an increasing consolidation of power in Washington that that maybe the natural ebb and flow of letting the great golden state of California set its own emission standards might serve us just as well. 
By the way, don't diminish your eighth grade civics education because it's more than most people with graduate degrees have today. <laughs> At least there was some, right? Most people don't don't get any civics education. But Rosa, you've been deferred to. Oh, uh, <laughs> I, no, I defer to Corey's eighth grade civics teacher, of course. But but but, I, you know, I think that the the question that Corey throws out, uh, you know, and that Evelyn added on to is 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 a fair question, which is it's easy to say, oh, gee, if we were starting from scratch in a perfect world, is this the Constitution that we would write today? And I think almost all of us would say no. And in certain respects, we would want significant changes. You know, there are probably pieces of the Constitution that we would all want to keep and everybody would agree on. There are probably pieces that most of us would agree should be changed. Um, But that's totally separate from whether there's any realistic likelihood of that happening. Um, That being said, um, I, I, I think I think there are a couple of things worth thinking about. Number one, um, it is worth continuing to ask ourselves the question if we were starting from scratch today, not 200 and, uh, you know, 40 or whatever it is years ago, um, what would our constitution look like? Um, because how do you know what marginal and incremental changes to push for, uh, if you don't know what you want things to look like, how do you know that, that we, we that that shouldn't stop the fact that the fact that amending the Constitution is extraordinarily difficult shouldn't stop us from having that discussion, number one, um, in part because, you know, we sure aren't going to be able to make any changes if we never even talk about it. Right. It's not going to happen. The only way it's ever going to happen, admitting that it's still pretty unlikely is if we have an active and lively discussion about the pros and cons of doing so. So I, you know, I think that having that conversation is really important. Uh, and part of the reason for that goes back to the point I was making about America's global stature. Take take ourselves out of our American shoes. You know, imagine looking at the state of American democracy from from the eyes of some objective observer uh, who thinks about the fairness of electoral systems, who thinks about the fairness of different types of representation systems, we would look horrible. We're a disaster and we're getting worse, you know, for some of the, you know, some of the reasons that I said that a system that, that may have made sense in the beginning makes less and less sense now, a system that may make sense when the biggest state is 10 times bigger than the smallest state stops making sense when the biggest state is 40 times bigger than the smallest state. And if we, if we can't figure out anything to do about that, it's going to hurt us more and more and more as time goes by. It's going to hurt us in the eyes of others in terms of our attraction, you know, our attraction to to investors, our attraction to immigrants, the kinds of immigrants we absolutely want, right? People who will revivify this nation. It's going to be harder to attract new people. It's going to be hard to attract the best and the brightest to a democracy that is seen as failing in all kinds of ways. And we are a failing democracy at this point. You know, I think we have to face that. You know, that doesn't mean that there is some magic easy solution, partly again, because of our constitution, we're locked into not having any easy solutions. Um, But I, I don't think we should underestimate how devastating this is going to be if we can't find some way to mitigate the ongoing impact of the sort of structural imbalances created by our constitutional system. You know, the, the, the last time those structural imbalances got this bad, we had a civil war. That, 
and we changed the Constitution. That was not a great way to do it, right? You know, that was a pretty miserable way to do it that caused untold pain to lots and lots of human beings across the country. We ended up with a Constitution that I think most people would say was better than what we started with pre-Civil War, you know, thanks to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But we only got there after a devastating civil conflict. Um, that can happen. You know, I, I, and I think that the road that we are on right now is a road that leads us closer and closer to some sort of devastating future conflict. I don't think that's inevitable. I don't think that's desirable. You know, but I think if we can't start trying to think of mitigation mechanisms, whether it's are there amendments that would be feasible, maybe ones that don't take effect until 30 years from now that give people some time to adapt, you know, maybe, et cetera. You know, it, does Corey's strategy of creating incentives to even out the population balance, does that work? Uh, do people move of their own accord? You know, there are, there are, there's not a sort of inevitable pathway to decline in civil conflict. Um, but I do think that that pathway becomes a lot more likely if we don't start having that very active debate about how to address these structural imbalances. Well, you know, that constitutional scholar Kanye West came out this weekend against the 13th Amendment. He subsequently oh, amended yeah, that. Well. And, 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 uh, Somebody said, needs to talk to his eighth grade civics teacher. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, you know, Kim has given him a lot of good advice. But in any event... Uh, wait, you know, wait, can I just add one thing to the list, David, before we move on? Um, please, statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. Yeah, well, the Republican Party will go for that. Um, I know, never. I know. But I mean, if we're talking about hard problems that need to be solved, that need to be examined by scholars and politicians, we need to add those two into the mix. Yeah. It's true. I, 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 as, a, as a resident of Washington, D.C., I... <laughs> I, but I it, but in, and in the meantime, question. I you know I would I would make a plea to all the Republican senators who I know are listening avidly to this podcast, looking <laughs> for guidance on on how to vote on Kavanaugh, you know, and I would say, guys, you're you you represent a a minority of this country. Um, don't vote for to confirm a candidate who is so divisive and who is opposed by. A, a simple majority of this country, you got other people. It doesn't have to be this guy. You know, find one of the other people who will well, not so divide. But President Trump may think it needs to be this guy because of his view on executive power. Indeed. Well, right. let's let's set that aside for a second. This is a this is a you know a foreign policy, national security, primarily oriented podcast, and you used a word in your. Um, last analysis there, Rosa, which is really significant in a foreign policy context, and that was attraction. You know, uh, Joe Nye in his discussion, I said uh, you, you, you Did were talking. Yes, you say we lose. Uh -oh. you, you say we lose the uh, power of attraction that we've got ah, when our system breaks down. I didn't know that that was a foreign policy word. <laughs> if, if, right. Well, Corey will tell you that in Joe Nye's seminal work on soft power, he talk, describes it as, you know, uh, the power of attraction, the power of our system to attract, the power of us. I just think that when we're talking about a candidate for the Supreme Court who's been accused of sexual assault, we should leave attraction out of it, David. Well, I don't think it plays any role in it in either event, but, but I get your point. But Corey, you know, as we, as we look to this, as we look to the world, and as we look to what Rose is describing as a kind of critical set of problems for the U.S. and the U.S. system, 
Is there another system out there that you think is gaining attraction for the rest of the world? <laughs> uh, parliamentary democracies, <laughs> where you actually have to make coalition governments, where you agree in the formation of a government uh, what the policy implications of joining will be, and that's binding on the members. See what happens? Oh. She goes to England. And the next thing you know, yeah. yeah. Ah, but actually, England's a terrible example of it because they, for the most part, don't have a multi-party government. Uh, I was thinking more of Denmark or the Netherlands or countries where you have to negotiate a binding policy uh, set of agreements. Um. The Chinese are trying to make a lot of noise about how they're the real model and they're the real upholding of the international order. And I think that's not going to work out as well as Xi Jinping hopes it will for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, their actions don't reassure, especially their immediate neighbors, of their beneficent purposes. Uh, and second... You know, we're engaged in the great test of Hegel's theory that as people grow more prosperous, they become more demanding political consumers. And I, my own guess is that that is happening in China as well as happening in other places. So the same kinds of challenges that free societies have to reach consensus. I think authoritarian societies, as they move up the income chain are going to be faced with too. The last thing I will say, though, is because I cannot resist, uh, for most of the 19th and 20th centuries, at least, the United States was not nearly the shining city on the hill that we think of ourselves as. And so while I share Rosa's conclusion that the disgraceful spectacle of my fellow Republicans' behavior in trying to force through the Kavanaugh confirmation um, is bad for America's standing in the world. My comfort is that, you know, in 1956, when the 101st Airborne was forcibly integrating schools in the American South, or 1973 during the Vietnam War, or the Bork confirmation hearings. Fair point. Um, there are a lot of lows. Yes, that's and, true. And very often. <laughs> yeah, not to mention the Civil saving, War. The yeah, Civil which, War with the Yeah. Uh, is that we still get some stuff right, and and we need to fix stuff where we can, and we need to not let the president or the Congress's voices be the only voices that people hear from Americans. Well, no, that's a very yep. important, that's a very important point, a very important perspective. Uh, I can't help um, in the in the context of this discussion of the power of attraction, Evelyn, to bring up the recent burgeoning love affair between the President of the United States and uh, Kim Jong-un. When the president this weekend, when the president this weekend said that he had fallen in love with Kim Jong Un, I mean, you know, you can barely imagine that this stuff is really, really happening. But he said we exchanged letters, and I think we fell in love. 
You know, maybe maybe it's not just us. <laughs> maybe maybe we're being attracted to other kinds of systems. I mean, I think Trump likes Kim's system better than he likes our own system. I'm sure he does. That's for sure. You know, he likes the press agent. The North. The the more Sarah Sanders and others around him her speak, the more it sounds like they're the North Korean press agency speaking. They, you know, it all sounds like dear leader talk. So. You know, Evelyn, I know you've dealt with some of these issues, and I just wonder, early on when you were doing this analysis, did you ever think such a love story was possible? Never, never. I mean, I started working on North Korea in 2001. I traveled there in 2008. Um, but let me ask you a question. People that I felt I wanted to fall in love with, you know. Um, well, did you ever think there. George Bush or Barack Obama was showing any sort of emotional <laughs> inclination towards the leaders of North Korea you've dealt with? The great no, on the contrary. I mean, well, you know, Barack Obama gave him the cold shoulder, right? You know, he just said, we're just we're just going to not deal with North Korea for a little while. And um, and, the, you know, President Bush tried to be tough with them, which backfired. And then he was and then he was kind of in this wooing them. But it was very transactional and obviously didn't last. Um, I don't think that that that, you know, trying to um, declare your love for Kim Jong-un is going to make him more cooperative. I think he's just decided he being Kim Jong-un that he wants to cooperate at all costs so that he can buy time. He wants to just become a de facto nuclear power. He's essentially, I mean, every day they're still essentially, you know, creating new nuclear material for nuclear weapons. They haven't stopped doing that. And in fact, we believe they have more facilities now and potentially over time they could build more facilities for their uranium or plutonium reprocessing. Um, and, and so it will be also become harder later to deal with the problem. So for Kim Jong-un, he just wants to buy time. He can become a de facto nuclear power like Pakistan because what he really wants to do, he, unlike his father, understands because Kim Jong-il did have some economic reforms. He had, he toyed with allowing the North Koreans, especially when things were tough economically, to to sell. He had a little bit of free market freedoms thrown in there. But then as soon as it went too far or, or, he, or he felt like he was uncomfortable with it, he would ratchet it back. And so Kim Jong-il had no real economic program. But Un, unlike his father, has understood. I mean, he understands the world better, right? He grew up in the West. And so it's logical he's going to understand better, uh, more about the free market system. And he sees next door that the Chinese have maintained control politically while they have achieved a better, obviously, economic situation than the North Koreans. So what, what Un wants to do is get the nuclear program in place, you know, have everyone ignore the fact that they're a de facto nuclear power so that he can start getting some goodies, you know, doing some, some more trade with his neighbors and eliminating, of course, the sanctions and building the North Korean economy. I don't know what his end game is. That's a big open question. You know, you you guys might recall when H.R. McMaster was still national security advisor, at one point there were media articles about speculating that H.R. somehow had a view that the North Korean leader was gonna use the nuclear weapons in order to essentially blackmail or strong arm the South Koreans into reunifying. I, I, I certainly don't see that as a short-term plan of, of for, for, for Pyongyang, maybe over the long run, but I also kind of, I don't see how the North Koreans can take control, effectively political control over South Korea. So they may just use the time to build up their economy and then just get the South Koreans to agree that de facto their state will remain into perpetuity. 
You know what that sounds to me like, Corey? It sounds to me like our president, who has opened his heart up to this guy, is going to have his heart broken. It is going to be stomped on by (laughs) Kim Jong-un, who is using him to get his way with him. And our loving, warm-hearted president um, is going to, this is going to end in tears. That's what I predict. Okay, so since I am the resident possessor of the tiara of optimism, I want to give you another trajectory for this love story, David. Whoa, wait a minute. You're also the one who says you don't want that visual. (laughs) Oh, I (laughs) promise you, you want this visual. Because it's from Dr. Seuss's timeless Christmas story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And as you were talking about President Trump having his heart broken, I was thinking... He has a heart size several times too small, right? He doesn't have the slightest bit of empathy from tearing children away from their parents and putting it putting them in detention camps. He doesn't have the slightest bit of Which incidentally violates both US court orders and international standards. Thank you, Rosa. Uh, you are such a nerd. You are such a nerd. Several times yeah, could, too small. Yeah, but, right. but maybe just as when the Grinch and Cindy Lou Who come into contact, maybe Kim Jong-un will expand the president's capacity for human empathy. And maybe it might even extend to the 200,000 people Kim Jong-un has in prison camps right now. Wow, and they could both free their people from concentration camps. (laughs) Right. Yeah, but uh, Rosa, what do you think of that? Corey has taken us a place no one has ever gone. And the reason that people show up at Deep Sea, she has made an analogy between Kim Jong un and Cindy Lou Who. You know, <laughs> I will say that I think <laughs> that's Donald why Trump's people heart. that's why people subscribe to DeepStateRadioNetwork.com. Go on. I, I think <laughs> Donald Trump's heart is not merely two sizes too small. I'm not entirely convinced he actually has a heart that can be broken. At yeah, all. I'm but with you. His, his heart is a shriveled little nothing. So I think even Cindy Lou Who would have a tough time with him. Uh, but she might. Although, I, yes, go on. I seed you the argument, Rosa. No, I was just, <laughs> I was just surrendering and saying Rosa's right. And and Rosa, do you want to offer anything on your predict- prediction for the future of this romance before we wrap oh, up today? I, you know, I mean, here's what protects Donald Trump from heartbreak, in addition to not actually having a heart. Um, he, in addition to not having a heart, he also doesn't have a brain. In fact, he's he's like <laughs> quite a few of the uh, characters uh, in The Wizard of Oz sort of rolled into one pre-miraculous um, revivification. Um, you know, he he he's so Im- impervious to actual reality that it doesn't make any difference. I mean, Kim Jong-un could, could, you know, actually lob a nuclear missile in the direction of the United States. And I still think that if Trump, if Trump thought it was politically convenient to say that everything is going great and he's in love and they're all in love and, and, you know, he'll keep saying it. So, uh, if you have no interest in reality, you're, you're, even if you have a heart, your heart cannot be broken. Wow. Now oh there, that is advice, <laughs> advice for the lovelorn from Rosa Brooks. 
That's. The thorny crown of entropy speaks to the love of the world. And if, if you're totally disconnected from reality, you can be happy all the time. Is that roughly what you're saying? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, that's uh, something to hang your hats on there, folks. And that's the place where we're going to hang our hats on this last uh, uh, moment of this episode of Deep State Radio. I encourage all of you who have not gone to go to deepstateradionetwork.com, look at the site, look at the new features. Uh, one of the things I'd like to encourage you to do, uh, besides becoming a member, because that supports us and helps us grow, is to look at what we're talking about in terms of new voices. What we'd like to do is create a section on the site called New Voices, where we can bring people who are not writing for, contributing to sort of the handful of establishment media in these areas, can offer their views, can have a platform for themselves, in particular, voices of women, voices of people of color, voices of people from overseas, and, and voices of a new generation. We'd like to see this become the home for people to make contributions, but they have to be high quality and they have to offer something new to the equation. So we hope- Yay, we want all of you! We, can, we just, can we just add that they have to be in verse? If, they don't, if they're not high quality, they should at least be in verse- I hadn't really thought of that, but no, because bad verse <laughs> is a scourge. Bad verse is a scourge, Rosa. You should or know a good that. Verse. Okay, good verse. If something's in good verse, we will give it serious consideration, and so we will take your articles, suggestions for little limericks. audio op, uh, op eds, but also limericks, <laughs> no, no sonnets. Limericks, limericks. Evelyn, I do not want those visuals. We will send all the limericks <laughs> directly to Corey. <laughs> Um, they, the British love limericks, by the way. They, they that's really kind of their thing. Anyway, um, we, we, you know, on a serious note, we think there's a lot of people who've got great things to say who don't have a place to say them. And so, what we want to do is create that platform and make the Deep State Radio Network be really the Deep State Radio community and a different kind of a conversation. So, please join us for that. Go to the site. Sign up, support us, but also write something. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Corey. And everybody come back soon because we got stuff going on here all week long. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. Can I just say, I know I say this all the time, but I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and we love you too, Corey. <laughs> okay.